Welcome to Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. If I can just ask one thing to my new or old listeners, please hit the subscribe button and also share this podcast with friends. It means more than you realise. Follow your gut isn't just a, it's a saying, but it's true, right? So just reconnecting with what your gut is telling you is a really powerful tool to help get to better health because it gives us a lot of important messages. How your gut feels, your gut health. Observe if there are foods that you believe aren't agreeing with you. Like listen to yourself and really try to understand it. But it's listening to yourself is different to listening to the trends or your favorite influencer on Instagram who perhaps only eats bananas as their only food. I mean, it's that fine line of really understanding what you yourself need and then what you think you need because you've read it somewhere else. Federica Amati is a registered nutritionist with a PhD in clinical medicine research who specializes in achieving optimal nutrition through evidence-based, personalized nutrition plans. Federica works as a nutritional scientist consultant for Zoe Nutrition. The Zoe app launched in the US and the Zoe COVID study used the technology in place to run what is now the largest live study with over 4 million registered participants logging into the app. But there's more on that later because today we explore what the gut microbiome is and how it links with an individual's diet and metabolic health. How by looking more at our gut health and avoiding food-driven inflammation, could this be the key to achieving a healthy weight, maximizing your energy and overall optimal health? So before we start this conversation, I am delighted to welcome Federica to Live Well Be Well today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. What an amazing introduction. You covered so much. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to cover through all your incredible work. And I know we're going to geek out a lot today on everything from the gut microbiome to nutrition because the research in this area and what you're working in is phenomenal. So I'm so excited to talk to you today. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I can't wait. After our initial chat, I was like, well, this is going to be such a fun one to record. It really (laughs) has so many shared interests. It's perfect. I know. I can't wait. And I think the thing is, gut health has really boomed. You know, it's kind of like the star of the show in the last Mm -hmm. 10 years. Everything is linking back to our gut health from mental health to our immune system to our energy. And so I thought what would be a really good way to start is actually understanding really what is the gut microbiome because you always hear about microbes and the good and the bad but really what is our gut microbiome? Good question so I think gut health typically was thought of like absence of symptoms so we looked you know if somebody had discomfort or often had indigestion or lots of gas it was like oh their gut health isn't great but that's actually evolved and as you said now we know that it's not just about being gassy and it's not just about not having to take Tums every time you have a meal. It's actually, there's a whole population of living beings in our gut, specifically the large intestine. And they are as important to us as like our own human cells are to us. So it's it's really mind blowing. There's actually slightly more microbial cells in our bodies than there are human cells. People often think, oh my goodness, we're just a vehicle for these microbes. (laughs) And it does feel like that sometimes when you're looking at the research. It's like, well, nothing we do is basically 
you know, not for them. So the gut microbiome is basically, it refers to the population of microbes, and that's viruses, protozoa, but mostly it is bacteria that live in our gut, and they form their own sort of microclimate within our bodies. Just to mention here, there is the gut microbiome, the skin microbiome, the oral microbiome, and then there's the vaginal microbiome in women. And they all have very important functions and they all work very differently. So somebody like me who I specifically look at the gut microbiome and I, a little bit of the vaginal microbiome because of its role in fertility and conception. But, you know, the skin microbiome, for example, is a completely different environment. So there's lots to learn about each one. And everyone has a big role to play in keeping us healthy. But there's absolutely no doubt that the gut microbiome plays a much bigger role than we could have ever imagined 10 years ago. So, you know, the initial links that we saw between the gut microbiome population and obesity, for example, you know, those studies left the science world shocked at how much of a correlation and association there was between the two things. And now we know, as you said, that the gut microbiome is associated with our immune function. It's associated with our mental health in a really big way. Mm. And that's also why it's called the second brain. It's associated with what food we choose to eat. So these microbes actually sort of dictate what we then choose to eat because they want to perpetuate themselves. So if you are somebody who, for instance, loves eating a Big Mac every day, and there are people that do that, the gut microbes that thrive off your Big Mac keep sending your brain messages of, give us some more Big Macs, right? Because <laughs> we need to stay alive. <laughs> so we've just, we just keep discovering things that are amazing about the gut microbiome and the power it holds. But also, you know, if you look at the grand scheme of health, the gut microbiome is something we can actually change. We can't really change our genetics, right? And even epigenetics, which is fascinating. Epigenetic markers are set quite early on. So then and that's it's like switching you... your genes, isn't it? Just to give some people some context around yes. epigenetics, around yes. many, for a very long time, we thought there was these thing called junk genes, which actually yeah. didn't have a purpose. And now we realize that they, they do have a purpose and you can mm -hmm. switch them on and off. But as you kind of say there, you're really predisposed to them so yeah well what's interesting about epigenetics is that if my favorite analogy of this is not I didn't make this up but it's my favorite <laughs> one is that if you think of genes as the music on a music sheet epigenetics is how loudly or how softly or how quickly those notes are played mm -hmm. so somebody could have exactly the same genes as in identical twins for example but how those notes are played are impacted by the epigenetics. And to further that, the microbiome is the orchestra, okay? Your sort of music sheet is set and how quickly or loudly is then set, usually around conception, first two years of life. But then you can change your orchestra. You can increase the percussion and reduce the trombones, you know, mm. and like slightly mm. change what that piece of music then sounds like. And if that piece of music is our health, I think that's what's empowering about the microbiome, the gut microbiome, is that it's really a tool that we have that can actually impact our health. Because it can be a bit gloomy and doomy when you think about genetics and epigenetics and the blueprint for health being set in the first two years of life. It's like really interesting from a research point of view. And it's why I love working with pregnant women and children. But for adults, they're a bit like, OK, cool, but <laughs> I'm way past two years old. So what can I do now? And that is where the gut microbiome holds a huge amount of potential. 
a really big thing here, which is something that I'm very passionate about and, and, and speak about a lot is that we're all very individual and, you know, our nutrition should be personalized to us and we're all different. So what works for one person might ne- necessarily work for another. And I think this is really important because when we're looking at our gut microbiome, it's very unique to that individual, isn't it? Oh, yes. It's like, it's as unique as your fingerprint. And that's what's exciting is that, so you're completely right. Having this blanket recommendation for nutrition it makes absolutely no sense okay Mm. so if you're somebody who you know is living in Sweden working in an office the same recommendations for diet cannot apply as somebody who is living in southern Spain working the fields as a farmer like it just obviously it doesn't make sense Mm. but it's not even when the changes are that obvious okay not with that's a really obvious difference between Mm. a farmer and and an office worker but it's finer than that in fact Mm. there's twins uk studies that were done by tim Spector and his team specifically looked at identical twins and the reason why that work is so groundbreaking i know you're the fan of the work as well sarah is that they were the first group to say okay we have genetically identical twins who grew up in the same household as children okay so we've got the genetics and the epigenetics have set in the same way and so many of these twins have completely different health outcomes so what is going on and that's where the importance of the microbiome the gut microbiome and its changes really came to light because we realized that basically if you eat different foods and you have a different lifestyle which really directly impacts your gut microbiome, then all of your health outcomes are different, even in genetically identical people. So it's ridiculous to think that we can tell everybody to follow the same nutritional advice. And I think anyone who does that, I mean, this is just my opinion, but anyone who tries to do that is not a true nutrition scientist because it takes about even just one year of studying to realize that there is no advice that com- that is applicable to everybody. And I think in true nutrition science, everyone teaches that. We all learn that and we all teach that. So if anyone comes to you and says, I have the one solution, then I would say normally that probably don't have your best interests at heart and are certainly not evidence-based <laughs> because there is no evidence to support that approach. <laughs> 100%. And I think that's one of the big things that, we probably both constantly get asked as nutritionists, you know, what's the best diet is normally the opening line. And I'm kind of there going, well, how many hours have you got? Because there's so much that I need to research into your own health history and your day-to-day lifestyle before I could even start to answer that question. So I think I'm so pleased that you just mentioned that actually, because there's so many, you know, in inverted commas, because this isn't a podcast, but quick fixes out there. And they don't work and we are all different. And I think that social comparison thing can be very detrimental to one's health. And so when we're actually looking at our own gut health, so we understand what the gut microbiome is. We understand that there's, you know, trillions of different gut microbes out there. What's the signs of poor gut health? Because I think that's where I'd like to start really. How can we start recognizing if our gut health isn't even, you know, not optimal, but even balanced? Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, It's it's a big one because it it depends, right? It depends on the person. Mm. But generally speaking, I think if you're somebody who has a sense of what it feels like when you feel good. Mm. So starting with a baseline of if you had to pick a time when you felt good, you felt healthy, think back to that point and then come to now where you're talking to someone like us, what is it that's brought you to speak to us? And 
a lot of the time people will say that they feel sluggish, tired, maybe they're constipated so that their sort of daily toilet habits are off. They're not going to the loo as frequently as they used to. Or on the flip side, they're going mm-hmm. to the loo too frequently. And it's as soon as they eat something, you know, I often get told it just goes straight, straight through me. It just goes straight through me. And so there's that side of things, which is like the obvious gut symptoms where they don't feel like they are working properly in that sense. Then there's the tiredness and sluggishness, I think is really high up there. And then there's also the sort of discomfort, trapped gas or pain after eating. There's a lot of those kind of symptoms. And I mean, on the very extreme end, you have people who get very severe pain where they have to lie down Mm. after they eat. And there's some serious dysregulation going on there. And sometimes it's pointing to a dysfunction that goes beyond the gut. But I think it's safe to say that a lot of people who come to me and they complain of like gut issues, they have this um, kind of a fear of eating because they don't feel comfortable when they eat. They're not sure what it is that's causing the discomfort. So mm-hmm. they then get in a situation where they'll either eat the same thing every single day or whether they really restrict their diets to the point where they're not getting any diversity. They're lacking quite a lot of, you know, key nutrients and mm-hmm. They don't really know how to get back to a place where they eat without worrying about the impacts. Now, I think this is a good time to say that often gut symptoms go hand in hand with stress. Yeah. And anyone who suffers with IBS will tell you that when they have a, high, a period of high stress, their IBS symptoms will be completely out of control. Mm. And it will be really actually quite life limiting. Like you mm. don't, you can't go about your normal day when you have severe symptoms um, of irritable bowel. And there's a definitely a spectrum. But knowing how to spot dysbiosis can go from simple things, just like a little bit of constipation, or sometimes actually people say that they've noticed that the smell of their poo changes Mm. and they're like it doesn't smell right and that's a really important point we're all quite squeamish especially in the UK everyone doesn't like talking about poo (laughs) and it's actually it's one of the best markers of Mm. our gut health okay Mm. because that is literally the product of our gut transit time is really important we should be going to the loo every day or every day and a half if you start going less than that it's not ideal if you go too frequently similarly it's not ideal and any changes in the kind of how it smells or how it feels or something that is a sign that something's changed I'm really going to get graphic here guys I guess I'm quite used to this because it's consultation conversation but even you know fat male absorption you know if, if your stools are floating you know that's one kind of definite link to there might be a disruption there so there's lots of signs where actually how you can analyze going to the bathroom is a really important step to, as you said seeing that link between a healthy gut and you know I guess if you're just doing it for yourself and, and noting it down trying to have some idea of what's normal for you because again everyone's going to be different in this area aren't they yeah yeah everyone and even things like what time of your cycle you're in if you're a woman will change your bowel habits mm. it's not going to be the same every single day but I think people do get to have an understanding of what's right and what's wrong for them and that includes the sort of changes within a month or within a year that might happen and I I think a big part of the work I do with my clients is actually to help them reconnect with their own instincts (laughs) follow your gut isn't just a it's a saying but it's true right so just reconnecting with what your gut is telling you is a really powerful tool to help 
get to better health because it gives us a lot of important messages. So understanding both your, yeah, how your gut feels, your gut health, observe if there are foods that you believe aren't agreeing with you, like listen to yourself and really try to understand it. But it's listening to yourself is different to listening to the trends or your favorite influencer on Instagram who perhaps only eats bananas as their only food. I mean, it's that fine line of really understanding what you yourself need and then what you think you need because you've read it somewhere else. So there was a really interesting, well, there's been a few now studies done to look at gluten sensitivity and how it impacted different people. And there was a really well-conducted trial and they basically put the two groups, two arms of the intervention. Both arms had both interventions done to them, right? And the two interventions were either given gluten-free foods, but actually contained gluten. And then the other ones were given gluten-containing foods that actually weren't, didn't have gluten. So it was sort of testing how much of the perceived discomfort was actually because the gluten was present and how much of it was just because the participants expected the gluten to do them harm. Mm. And, you know, you probably won't be surprised to hear that the majority of those who identified as gluten sensitive actually had no reaction to the gluten containing foods when they believed that there was no gluten in them. There's like shades of gray of Mm. understanding what it is that really impacts us and what it is we think impacts us because we want an answer to our Mm -hmm. discomfort. Absolutely. And if we're also quite highly stressed, just thinking about that study, knowing that there could be trigger foods in there, you're already going to be more stressed by eating that, even if it hasn't got obviously that trigger food in it, because you're aware that if I eat that, that might actually give me a reaction. Whereas actually, if you know you're eating something and it's, I hate this word, but it's the easiest way to swear it, like cleaner food, you might feel less stressed around it so all of these other kind of cofactors come into play doesn't it and I think that's what's really important and I think probably the outcome of that is stress (laughs) Stress you're completely right I was just about to say so actually how much of your symptoms are due to stress yeah as opposed to it can be gluten it can be soy it can be I mean and let's not confuse this with true allergy which is easy to diagnose skin prick tests if anyone comes to me asking me about whether hair follicle testing works for allergies, I will cry. No, skin prick test with an allergist will tell you if you have an allergy. And of course, no one's doubting allergies, okay? True allergies are something that we need to avoid. But again, on that, interesting to see how exposing children's gut microbiome to diverse proteins in infancy decreases the likelihood of developing an allergy in adulthood. There's again a, a factor here of making sure our diet is diverse and is it, we expose ourselves. There's so many great foods out there that we could be eating. There's thousands and thousands of plants we could eat. I think we eat something like 3% of the edible plants in the world. And actually exposing ourselves to these foods is good for our immune system. It reduces the likelihood of us having reactions to foods mm. when we eat them. Uh, and that starts really with weaning. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to come on to the research and then also how we can modify our diet to, you know, obviously help impact our gut microbiome. But before I do, just before we go on to that stage, something that I really would like to point out here is around the leaky gut syndrome. So that is very heavily at the moment, I think, quite topical in the gut health world. And I think many people will probably look on a news headline and there will be some mention of leaky gut syndrome. Now, as a scientist and as speaking to other scientists, can we just mystify whether this is true or false with the leaky gut syndrome? Because I think a lot of people 
might be misdiagnosed or might not really understand what leaky gut syndrome is. So let's try and clarify really the truth behind this claim. Yeah, this is a good one. I think, first of all, leaky gut syndrome is not a real diagnosis. You can't find it in the diagnoses accepted by medical professionals. But what's important to point out is that there are some diseases which cause hyperpermeability of the gut lining, which is basically the medical jargon for a leaky gut, right? But let's be clear that these people tend to be extremely malnourished children in very low income settings. So we are not talking about something that makes you feel a little bit unwell. Mm. This is a result of chronic malnutrition, which then causes a real disruption in the actual structure of the gut lining and the gut really of these children. And that results in a horrible cycle of inflammation with malnutrition and massive protein deficiency and a cycle which actually often leads to these children dying. They don't often survive. So it's a really serious thing. And it's true. It happens. And if you look at low income countries where a lot of nutrition interventions take place to try and save these children from acute malnutrition, one of the biggest markers of possible death is this happening when their gut basically disintegrates and isn't able to function properly. Now, how does that translate to higher income countries or even middle income countries and people being told that the reason they have discomfort is because they have a leaky gut? It's not the same thing. It's just not the same thing. Our gut lining is one cell thick, as you know, it's really thin and it's very delicately balanced to stay intact and to only let in what's supposed to be let in and otherwise keep the sort of gut blood barrier intact so that we don't have toxins and bacterial residue just leaking into our blood from our gut lumen from the inside of our gut so it is a delicate balance it is like a one cell thick lining which can become disrupted but I think diagnosing people in say the UK with a leaky gut I wouldn't personally do it it seems like a way of selling a quick fix to me and also of medicalizing what can just sometimes happen if we go through a period where we're not eating ideal foods to maintain our gut lining healthy and of course you won't be surprised to hear that that gut lining is maintained by our gut microbes they produce short chain fatty acids They're actually the byproduct Mm -hmm. of the microbes breaking down fiber from plants. Mm -hmm. And it actually maintains the gut lining healthy, makes sure that the junctures between the gut lining cells are tight so that things don't just pass in and out freely. Hence why fiber there is so important. I just wanted to pop that in. I mean, I always try and talk about the importance of fiber. And that is just a great reason of why we need to be getting at least 30 if not more grams of fiber a day. That, exactly. And it's funny because now some companies, so one of the short chain fatty acids, which is most responsible for this function, is butyrate. And there are some companies now that are trying to make butyrate as a supplement. And actually you can't do that. It doesn't work like that, right? So the way it works is that we have specific strains in our gut microbiome, which choose specific types of fiber. So you can't just take one fiber supplement or choose to just eat apples every day as your fiber intake. Even if you had 30 grams of fiber from apples every day, that wouldn't be enough. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure we have a diversity of fibers. Now, the American Gut Health Project published 
um, their results and showed that actually we should be aiming for 30 different types of plant a week for optimal health, right? Mm -hmm. And people are often like, 30? Oh my goodness, how do I even get there? But actually that includes herbs and spices Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. seeds and nuts. So when you really look at it, it, it's much easier than you think. And all it takes is switching up from pumpkin seeds to mixed seeds, using one herb to using maybe three different herbs when you're cooking. And slowly but surely, your number creeps up. And a really easy way of doing this as well is just to eat seasonally because you have to switch it up. If you actually follow seasonal produce, you have to switch it up because things go in and out of season. So you just can't cook the same three or four vegetables for the whole year. You have to switch it up. And so I think that fiber diversity if you manage to hit that goal of 30 plants a week, and if you're able to incorporate plants into every single meal you have. And again, that's not that hard to do. In the mornings, you might be somebody who likes to have porridge with nuts and seeds and maybe some berries. That's lots of plants in there. Or you might be someone who actually prefers savory. So perhaps you're having sourdough, but in your sourdough, you have added seeds, you have avocado, and then you have some rocket with it. And again, it's again, sprinkle some seeds I just think if, if you're unsure just sprinkle some seeds on it you know so I do <laughs> sprinkle my seeds and soup <laughs> there you go sprinkle I like sprinkle seeds and, and another thing that's like an easy win is if you're if you're not allergic to nuts make your own trail mix at home mm. just get some plain roasted nuts but just mixed ones put them in a jar with one dried I like sometimes I like to have either raisins or like dried blueberries are actually delicious and goji berries are good goji berries are great and just bring that with you just put it in a little tupperware and when you're going out the house bring it with you and you've literally got access to brilliant diverse plant fibers right there in your pocket when you're hungry and they're really tasty as well I mean I love a, I love a trail mix you just make it at home and you change it up a bit sometimes you have pecans sometimes you have pistachios you know change it up when we talk about leaky gut we're talking about something that is either a true medical condition that does happen, unfortunately, and can cause death, but in very severe cases of malnourishment, malnutrition, or we're talking about something which I think has been coined as a term to try and explain gut discomfort, which is probably just associated with having a poor diet for a while, mm-hmm. um, or very high levels of stress, which then in turn impact your gut health. And in this latter case, so in a high income country setting with people coming to see people like us for advice, often dietary change will solve it and will be enough to decrease the symptoms, decrease any inflammation that is resulting from a slightly disrupted lining. But we're not seeing the huge catastrophic, frankly, disruption of the gut lining that we see in clinical cases of gut hypermobility in children. I think that's really important, isn't it? These coined terms that you see thrown around. And honestly, I feel like I'm a constant broken record repeating this all the time, but I'm going to keep doing it until it stops. Because there is so many things where we can self-diagnose and think, oh, that sounds like me. And it's quite easy to do when, you know, you are suffering and at that point you are the most vulnerable. And so I think it's really important for anyone who's listening to this just to kind of actually take a step back and think, is this from a true medical resource? And does this sound like another coined term, as you said, and to reach out for that specific nutritionist advice from a registered nutritionist or dietitian. And going on to that, I want to come into the research, which has been incredible from Zoe. So when we spoke before this podcast, I mean, I am a huge fan 
of Dr. Tim Spector. I remember, and I actually said this, you know, I'm not afraid to admit this, you know, <laughs> when was the one time you've ever been starstruck? I mean, probably since I was 15, I've been around some quite influential people. And the one time I was starstruck was from inviting Dr. Tim Spector to one of my Be Well summits and he came and spoke. And just because I've done so much research on him and his 900 scientific journals that he's been a part of, he is pioneering the area in gut health research. And he's launched this app called Zoe. Now, there's two different dimensions to Zoe if no one's heard of it. So the personalized nutrition one, but there's also the Zoe COVID study, which is slightly different, but still under um, the instruction of Dr. Tim Spector and his researchers. And they've used technology running the live study with over 4 million registered participants logging into the app. So that is phenomenal. So there's two different areas here of Zoe. We're going to concentrate more on the personalized nutrition one. So can you, first of all, before we go into all the fantastic studies that they've done, like the predict studies and, and everything, which looks at blood sugar control and weight and inflammation, we're going to dissect into that in a minute. Could you just kind of give your role in the lead of the Zoe app and the personalized approach that it has with nutrition. Yeah, I mean, it's very exciting. So Zoe, I think, is going to revolutionize how we approach buying nutritional advice. So it's a brilliant product. And I am a bit biased, for sure, because I'm involved. But um, I was lucky <laughs> But to you join loved him, Spectre, before you joined. So in a way, <laughs> you're not. <laughs> it was actually great. Um, I was working with Tim on other projects to do with research and some of his work with, with his books and stuff. And then Zoe was already been formed. They've already launched in the US. They've already changed, I think it's 200,000 people's lives in the US, wow. um, really improving their well-being. And yeah, there is associated weight loss, but that is certainly not the aim of Zoe. Mm. The aim of Zoe is to empower individuals with the knowledge of their own biology to make the best food choices for themselves. So I was lucky to join late on in the kind of game when they were translating the app and upgrading it for the UK market. So I was brought in as a consultant and I got to work with, honestly, the most brilliant team. They have such a good, talented team. They're actually hiring in the UK. The women, I'm, I'm, I'm sending it to everyone. Like, if anybody wants to work with a really great company, <laughs> like, they're just really, you know, when really lovely people and very bright. So it was mm. really an honor to do it. I basically helped put together some of the content for the app. One of Zoe's missions is to really bring nutrition education to its users. Mm -hmm. So the lessons are bite-sized, super easy to understand, but cover some of the most complex topics in nutrition. So we explain what the gut microbiome is, what prebiotics are, what probiotics are, what postbiotics are, what postprandial inflammation is. We're going to get onto that. I know, right? (laughs) But all in like accessible app-based lessons so I that's what I was heavily involved with writing these lessons and it was such fun and the quizzes and just this content in the app which actually helps bring together the science to the user so that when they receive the results the results make sense in the context of the science that we present to them so what Zoe does is it brings together data from hundreds of thousands of clinical studies including PREDICT which is the single biggest personalized nutrition studies that exist in the world at the moment. And Zoe is a collaboration between Professor Tim Spector's team at King's College, but also the Harvard Chan uh, School of Public Health, Stanford, just centers of excellence globally, Mm. really. And what they do is you get sent a kit at home. Uh, So you buy the kit online and you can actually join the wait list for the UK launch now. And you get a kit delivered to your house, which contains some muffins, 
uh, which are actually formulated by Sarah Berry, who is this amazing Are these the blue muffins that I've been seeing? No, the blue muffins, interestingly, the blue muffins are what you do to look at your transit time. Ah. So, you know, we were talking about gut health and transit time. Mm. So the blue poop muffins, you can make them at home and then you just basically time time eating time. And then when you see blue in the toilet bowl, that has been shown to more accurately predict the state of your gut microbiome than any Bristol stool chart. So it's really cool, right? So that's a good one to do if you want to do it at home. You can look it up, blue poop challenge, it's everywhere. And anyone can do it. So it's really nice. So they send you this kit and it has the muffins that are formulated by Dr. Sarah Berry. And it also has like a scale to weigh some food later in the app if you want to. And essentially a continuous glucose monitor, which... It's becoming quite trendy now with like personal trainers and stuff. But in the context of the Zoe study, it directly links your data to the database, which which your results are created with. It monitors your kind of glucose patterns over two weeks. And then what happens is you do the tests with the muffins. Now, these muffins are formulated to be exactly the same as the average meal that we consume in the US and the UK in terms of macros and calories, which is a kind of way of standardizing how we can tell your response to glucose and to fat in your blood. It's they're devoid of fiber. There's no good stuff in them. <laughs> so they're technically like a very stressful meal for our bodies. Okay. There's no polyphenols. There's no like beneficial plant chemicals in there. But by stressing your metabolism this way, what Zoe is able to do is use the artificial intelligence that they have from all the hundreds of thousands of people in the studies to then see where you plot in your response. So they do that for blood fats. They do that for blood sugars. And then the last bit of the test, which I forgot in the kit, is your poop sample box. Which <laughs> so you we know now sample. is very important. <laughs> very important. And you send that poop sample off to the lab and they do a full metagenomic sequence of your entire gut microbiome. So like the wow. most in-depth by like the leading lab, right? So Mm. there's nobody who does it better than them. What you get is when your results come back to you through your app and whilst you're testing, you're receiving these lessons on each aspect of, you know, the Zoe app and how it works. So whilst you're waiting, you're learning loads of wonderful things and then you get your results and your results are a combination of these three main factors of your metabolism to bring you a personalized score of foods so there is no calorie counting there is no keeping an eye on how many macros you're eating it's completely different not in anywhere in the app does it suggest portion size or this is how many grams of carbohydrates you should aim for a day what you get is a completely personalized score which basically says, according to your biology and how your biology responds to food, these fruits are great for you. These aren't so great. These vegetables are great for you. These aren't so great. These grains are great for you. And my score will be completely different to your score, for example, purely because my biology is obviously different to yours because they're two different people. (laughs) And what's really nice about it is the Zoe app then coaches you through the changes you can make to improve your blood glucose response, to improve your blood lipid response, and crucially, to improve your gut microbiome profile. It takes you through the steps you need to take to make sure that 
the gut microbiome species you have in your gut are anti-inflammatory instead of pro-inflammatory. So it tells you how to grow the good guys and crowd out the bad guys. And so at the end of the program, the result is the majority of users, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but we're talking like 90%. So it's a big majority of users report feeling less tired, less hungry. Those that were overweight report weight loss. They report having a better understanding of the foods that are good for them, reduced digestive issues. And then there's some really amazing stories of people who have come off the hypertensive medication. They've been able to stop taking insulin if they had type 2 diabetes. Mm. I mean, really life-changing stuff, but all done without a prescription of here's what you need to eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but rather an understanding of here are the foods that are going to improve your biology for life right? I always remember there was one customer who said that his life was changed when he realized that barley was a grain that he could enjoy freely, according to Zoe, it scores. And so he loved like Mexican food and he loved Chinese food. And he just basically replaced any rice (laughs) with barley, as well as making the other changes. But he said that just making that change was so easy to do because barley is still delicious. And it meant that he could still enjoy the cuisines he wanted to enjoy, but he just had to switch a grain up and he simple had like changes. amazing results. Yeah, sim- simple changes reflect what your biology needs as opposed to trendiest Genetic advice. Yeah, or trendiest yeah. grain of the season, whatever it is. Yeah. Well, this is where we're really getting into the personalization and actually understanding, as you said, kind of the biochemistry within our body. And what I love about this, again, you just mentioned no calorie counting, no juicing or stripping back, actually just looking at, you know, what is going to optimize your health. And I think, I would say in the UK, but actually I think globally, we never look at like optimization. We never look at prevention. We're always like, oh, when we get to that stage, what can we do to kind of like draw back ourselves to a balanced state of health, as opposed to how can we prevent this happening or how can we optimize our well-being? And I think that's really important. And what I love about Zoe is they've also done, obviously they've done so many different research studies, but I'm going to kind of pull out a few here. They released one in obviously the fantastic research journal Nature last year in 2021. And they found that a group of 15 good and 15 bad gut microbes, and they were linked to better or worse health, including inflammation, blood sugar control, and weight. So can you tell us a little bit more about this study, about these kind of 30 different gut microbes that they found? This is a great study and the results are brilliant. Again, they have led to a flurry of people trying to create the perfect probiotic supplement. (laughs) But, you know, it does, again, it doesn't really work like that because you have to make sure you have the right prebiotics in your diet to sustain the good strains being alive in your gut. Mm -hmm. But you're exactly right, Sarah. Basically, what the study found was that there was 15 species that were highly associated with pro-inflammatory states. So these 15 species, and don't ask me the names, they're all complicated. None none of them are easy to remember. I always try to remember at least one, but I always fail. Um, I'm the same, don't worry. They're terrible, like honestly, like not catchy. We need to improve that. The 15 species that are really associated with poor health are the ones that the study group found were associated with cardiovascular disease, associated with increased risk of obesity, increased risk of type 2 diabetes, increased risk of depression. So increased risk of diseases of inflammation, which if you think about it, are most non-communicable diseases, right? And these species are associated with what we were talking about earlier, a disruption of the gut permeability and sort of having 
this slightly loosened, like not really working 100% well gut lining. So there's this inflammation from toxins that shouldn't really be leaving the gut lumen into the bloodstream, but they are because we don't have enough short chain fatty acids, enough butyrate to keep everything healthy. And so those 15 species, when they're found in your poo sample, if found to have them, basically we can now quite safely say that you are at increased risk of these inflammatory diseases. Yeah. Now on the flip side of that, what's interesting is, is that the 15 bad guys can't coexist with the 15 good guys. So you don't get a situation where somebody has like loads of both, right? Mm-hmm. They crowd each other out. So the 15 good guys, when they are present, as you can imagine, people tend to be uh, leaner, they tend to have improved inflammatory markers, generally a decreased risk of diseases. So what this study showed us was that there are actually specific strains that are good for human health. We already knew that having a diverse microbiome, gut microbiome specifically, is good for us. But now we could say, yes, diversity is good, but actually these 15 guys are like really good. So we want to have a diversity of them as opposed to a diversity of the other 15 who are not so great. And actually shifting the balance so that the 15 good guys prevail has a a dramatic impact on overall health. And so there's been some studies done off the back of this finding, which have shown that dietary changes, even after just a couple of days, can have a big impact on the shift from bad guys to good guys. So what we were talking about earlier with the gut microbiome being a health marker that we can impact in adulthood at any point in our lives, this is a perfect example because you might be somebody who has, you know, a highly pro-inflammatory gut microbiome profile and you could go away and just make some dietary changes over the course of two weeks and you'll find that you could actually make a big difference to the overall profiling of your gut microbiome. What's interesting is that the 15 bad guys, pro-inflammatory species, they don't thrive off of fresh fruit or vegetables. They don't, that's not what they like. There's a very close association between the pro-inflammatory species and consumption of ultra-processed foods. Which sadly two thirds of our baskets are full of in the UK. Yes. Which ultra-processed is foods. absolutely yeah. horrifying if you ask me. And what's really even worse is that the majority of ultra-processed foods consumption is in children so it's in adults you're right two-thirds and I think in children something like up to 80% of their diets can be made up of ultra processed foods which is just yes there's a lot of work to be done on bringing our shopping baskets and our plates back to actual food and I think it's controversial because people say oh well you're all food is food and that's true yeah that's fine but how do we then distinguish between food that grows from the ground or that we can actually make ourselves and food that is essentially made in factories and and is just indistinguishable from the original products that it's trying to recreate. (laughs) And so much uh, is down to choice, isn't it? If you look at kind of low-income areas, the choice around these low-income areas is so deprived. You know, you have a couple of supermarkets where half of the supermarket, well, probably two-thirds supermarket is ultra-processed food and they're all the ones that are displayed at the checkout and they're all the ones that have got the big bargains and they're cheaper and so it's just it can be so hard and stressful to actually navigate fresh vegetables sometimes and just offerings you know I think that's where we're really going wrong access to healthy food as you said can be completely inaccessible so there's places known as food deserts which are entire high streets where there is not one green grocer it is only takeaways takeaways and more takeaways 
absolutely not one. And there's actually in London, there's some really interesting you know, public health studies and, and how you give out licenses for these places. And it's like there should be there isn't at the moment, but there should be a law that dictates that there has to be at least one greengrocers or one shop mm. that sells fresh produce for every fast food outlet. And the moment at the moment, that's not the case. There's a lot of work being done to try and get the government to move a little bit faster on that. But yeah, you're completely right. Access is a massive issue. But you know, I also like to think that we can make these choices and we can find where we can get access because yeah. it doesn't have to be the farmer's market in Marlebone with like beautiful <laughs> rhubarb. That's obviously a luxury. Okay. Yeah. It's lovely if you've got the time and the money to do that. Great. But there's actually some really good ways of increasing your whole food diet in your diet that don't include spending a fortune and we like at the moment especially food prices are soaring it's really horrendous to see how yeah, much the they're soaring like I've really noticed it and I'm lucky in that I can buy food easily but it must be even tougher if you're honestly trying to reduce your cost of living at the moment but again here we look at canned dried foods like there is absolutely like having canned chickpeas in the house is such an easy nutrition win. Canned pulses and beans, dried barley, dried all these cold grains, they are so good for us. They're often very easy to make. You know, you don't really need to spend too much time doing anything to them to eat them and enjoy them. And I think a lot of it is also marketing. You don't get a lot of marketing for tinned chickpea. You know, no one's spending money on marketing that. But of course, with ultra processed foods, huge conglomerates are behind it. They have loads of money to spend. And so we are often marketed prepackaged, pre-made meals as good for us. High in fiber, you know, plenty of vitamins or added calcium, whatever it is. There's lots of different ways of marketing it. Yeah. And especially for children, again, it's the food industry has done a great job of selling children's foods that are completely ultra processed mm-hmm. as essential children's foods I just think there's got to be a balance there or there will be times when grabbing a quick snack or a quick meal for you or for your child is something you have to do but in no way should that be the majority of our food if it comes in a packet and it doesn't look like what it says it should be <laughs> then looking at the ingredients list do you have those ingredients in your kitchen If you don't, then it's most likely an ultra processed food because it's required a factory and lots of chemicals to preserve it, essentially. Well, I think what's really good here, actually, is a link with another study that was published from Zoe. I mean, obviously, you can tell I've been quite diving deep and I'm not sure how much more we're going to have time to cover. But one I really love, and I guess it's linking with ultra processed foods because you're having blood sugar crashes. So obviously, the more ultra processed it is, the more quicker our blood sugar goes up, which means the quicker it goes down, which leads us to kind of a drop in energy and then a craving again for that quick fix. And Zoe last year published again in the fantastic journal, um, Nature Metabolism, showed that big dippers, so people who experience these big dips in blood sugar, several hours after eating, end up feeling hungrier and eating hundreds more calories during the day than the little dippers who are responsible and smaller. And I love how they've just phrased the big dippers versus little dippers, because it just makes it so much more attainable to the everyday person who thinks, what is all this jargon that I'm reading about and can't understand it? But I think there we're having a direct link to our blood sugar. So I'd love to just quickly cover that actually because I think that's such an important part of our gut health and our overall health 
Yes, you're completely right. So blood glucose levels are actually way more important than we thought. So until recently, you think that you only need to worry about your blood glucose levels if you are diabetic or pre-diabetic, but that is not the case. So we now know that if you have continuously high blood glucose levels, it actually causes chronic low-grade inflammation. That is why our body works really quite hard releasing insulin as soon as blood glucose levels spike our body literally pumps out insulin, right? Um, because it's trying to clear that blood glucose from our bloodstream because it causes inflammation. That's kind of the first hint that it's not great. <laughs> now, of course, insulin then takes up blood glucose and either stores it away in your liver, stores it away in your muscles for later use, or stores it away as fat storage. Why do blood glucose levels rise? Put it simply, it's from starches in our diet. So Glucose lives as different types of molecules in starches in our diet. So whether that's potatoes or bread or pasta or carrots or pears, whatever, most food contains starch. The only foods that really don't contain any starch are things like extra virgin olive oil, like pure fats, you know, <laughs> things mm. that have that kind of profile. What happens is if we have a diet that's very rich in starches, we tend to have higher blood glucose peak. So for example, you go out for a meal and you decide to eat a risotto and maybe some cake afterwards, and maybe you drink some Prosecco with that. Okay. Now that as a combination of foods is starch rich. There's a lot of sugars going on in there, which will make your blood glucose spike. And somebody who has a good insulin response, a lot of insulin will be pumped out to clear that blood glucose. And what often happens if it's really high spike that insulin actually brings it down effectively, but to a point where you're hypoglycemic. So where your actual blood sugar levels go below a desired level for your body. And then again, so the body's just panicked because it's gotten really high and it's like, quick, 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 insulin, clear it. And then what happens is it dips, big dipper, right down into hypoglycemic levels. And your body's then like, oh my goodness, we don't have enough sugar in our <laughs> blood anymore to actually keep functioning. Because yeah. let's be clear, glucose is the number one energy for all of our bodies. So mm -hmm. cutting out glucose isn't the answer. Like eating carbohydrates and starches in our diet is absolutely essential for long-term health. I cannot stress this enough. Trying to maintain an extremely low carbohydrate diet is very, very difficult. Now there are some groups which are doing some great work with low carbohydrate diet in type two diabetics, but let's be clear, they include carbohydrates in the diet in the form of whole vegetables, whole fruits, whole nuts and whole grains, they just cut out any processed carbohydrate. That's the difference. Very it? important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what we need to look at is how many super accessible starches do we have in our diet? And often these are called naked sugars. So they're what we, you know, table sugar being the prime example of a naked sugar, mm -hmm. but there's other foods that have had what nature typically uses to dress our starches, which is fiber right? So if you look at where starch comes from, it's plants. Sugar comes from cane, for example, cane sugar. Now, typically when you eat a whole fruit or a whole vegetable or a whole grain, there is a hell of a lot of fiber involved in that eating of that food. Mm -hmm. What we've done with our processing is that we have stripped away these fibers and this changes the structure of the starch, how it comes into our blood, into our bodies and into our bloodstreams. It's called the food matrix. So once you break the food matrix and you strip it down and you are just left with the starch with no fiber, of course, 
that is a lot quicker to absorb because you don't have to break down the fiber coating, if you will, to get to the sugar. When you look at somebody who is eating the same amount of sugar, if you looked at just the carbohydrate sugar for it, eaten in a bowl with, say, pearled barley and broccoli and some sliced beetroot and some carrots, compare that to somebody who ate the exact same amount of carbohydrates but as white bread with, you know, some jam on it. So even if it was the same amount of carbohydrate, of course, the white bread with jam will create a much bigger spike because there is no delay in the absorption of that glucose into our blood. Whereas when we're eating carbohydrates that are complex, as we like to call them, they're basically just dressed. I think this is a good analogy again. They're dressed up. You've got to strip them down before you can actually absorb it. The simplest way of avoiding being a big dipper <laughs> is to dress your carbohydrates. Now, whether you like to have lots of greens before you have your pasta, so I'm Italian, as you know, Sarah, and mm-hmm. I eat pasta all the time. Okay. Mm. I love it. It's part of my culture. <laughs> now, do I just have buttered pasta? No, I don't, of course. But if I'm having pasta, I will always have some vegetables first. So mm-hmm. green vegetables or just a side salad if I'm in a restaurant, mm. just some fiber, some vegetables to just slow down the rate of the absorption that will inevitably come with the pasta dish. And of course, with my pasta, I always have more fiber with it. So mm. I, my sources are full of vegetables, but also I add fats and protein because they also dress your carbs. So if you love having bread in the morning, by all means, sourdough, by the way, is much better for you than supermarket loaf. Supermarket loaf is actually an ultra processed food. If you look at the label, it's not really bread. It's just something made to look like bread, <laughs> but it's that doesn't conform to the actual requirements to making bread. If you try to make it at home, it, you wouldn't be able to. So a sourdough loaf is not going to be bad for you, but certainly having a sourdough piece of bread with avocado seeds and an egg mm-hmm. is not going to cause anywhere near the blood glucose spike that having thick white sliced loaf with just jam on it is going to so it's about the quality mm-hmm. of the cu- sugars that we're eating the carbohydrates and i guarantee you that if you start dressing your carbohydrates with lots of fiber and some good sources of protein and some good sources of fats healthy fats and by healthy fats i really just mean extra virgin olive oil there's not that many others then you're slowing down the absorption of that glucose into your bloodstream and you're going to avoid being a big dipper But, you know, being a big dipper is one of the number one reasons why people go on to develop type 2 diabetes and diseases like obesity. Because as you rightly said, not only is it increasing your inflammation every time you eat, it's also causing you to feel very hungry just a couple of hours after eating that meal. You just keep feeling hungry and then eating and then feeling hungry and then eating. And of course, you end up eating more food than you need and also eating the kind of food that really increases your blood glucose levels and your inflammation. I think there's some exceptions to this rule. If you're running a marathon, you're going to need very quick access glucose. (laughs) So, you know, in those situations. that's going to fuel you to go on. And I think, you know, day to day, not many of us are running a marathon. Um, I'd love to say I was, but I'm not. And so I think there's obviously, you know, when we're looking and when we're discussing this kind of type of things, it's always about the general population and not kind of subgroups that are obviously needing even more personalized nutrition than than the individual. It's just so fascinating to hear about all of these different areas because it does really then heighten 
the conversation around personalized nutrition and really looking at the diversity, which seems to be a key theme throughout our conversation today of our diet and not just sticking to one vegetable or one way of eating or one carbohydrate. It's around, like, as you said, dressing that carbohydrate so beautifully put, but that is really important. And so I would say to anyone listening, kind of trying to gain different key elements from this of how can we optimize our gut microbiome through our diet and our health is diversity is one of them you know reducing our stress when we're eating and throughout our day as well as impacting our gut microbes how many complex carbohydrates are in our diet because we know that blood sugar and blood glucose is having a huge importance on these like big dipper moments that we've just spoke about and looking at foods that aren't going to cause increases in inflammation again like our ultra processed foods so how many whole foods have we got on our diet and where can we include plant foods in each meal as you said with nuts and seeds and even if it's just putting some green vegetables in a smoothie and trying to reduce the taste of it because you don't like it but trying to add in other things to kind of get that kind of bitter taste out the way but trying to increase it throughout the day and having all of these different areas as you mentioned can really work on that optimization and I think that is what's really important and there's so many more questions I want to ask you but sadly we have just come out of time but the last question I do want to ask before I leave which I ask all guests is Frederica what does live well be well mean to you? Oh it's a good question To your point, Sarah, I think live well, be well, for me, is a long-term investment. I think that there is no investment with more secure returns of investment than the investment in your own health. So if you want to live well and be well, consider every choice you make, every time you take that 10-minute walk after lunch and break your day up, every time you choose to add a new plant to your plate, Every time you reduce like an ultra processed food from your shopping cart, it is a direct investment in your future health. There's no quick fix. Like being well is a long term relationship with yourself. That's what live well, be well means to me. I love that. That's also kind of like a self gratification of every time I do this, I'm kind of making that one step as opposed to all the things that I'm not doing. And I think that's really important, acknowledging those step by steps as opposed to, you know, always disregarding yourself oh I should have done that better or why have I eaten that actually those small steps towards the positive things are really beneficial so I think really love the answer everyone's really listening to this going oh my gosh I'm fascinated by Zoe where can they find out more information about this so the best thing to do is to go on the website joinzoe.com they're also on instagram they have a youtube channel and there's also a podcast now where you can hear all the experts giving sort of their insights and for UK listeners specifically so if you go to joinzoe.com you can actually register to be one of the first in the UK Amazing. so I would definitely yeah recommend checking those out and then you can you know find out how your own biology ticks which is exciting if you're that way inclined <laughs> and where can people find out more about you as well oh yeah so I'm on Instagram and it's just Dr. Fed Amati on Instagram. And of course they can find me with uh, Live Well, Be Well Collective. Yes. Because I am one of your very, I'm very happy to be part of your team. So yeah, that's where you can find out more about me. Or you can just look at my Imperial College page if you like. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put all of this into the show notes, but definitely come to the Live Well, Be Well clinic for that. (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say. 
Federica, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like we definitely need to get you back on to talk about even more gut health and maybe fertility and women's health because that's also such a big area. So thank you so much. And thank you um, for having me. I hope you live well, be well yourself today. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. All the information covered in today's podcast with important links is in today's show notes. And if you haven't yet, please do hit the subscribe button and do share this with friends, family, co-workers, whoever you love, please share this podcast. It means more than you realize. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. If you love this podcast, I would really urge you to support us on Patreon. Our Patreon community really do help keep this podcast going. And alongside being within the community, you can also get exclusive access to early release podcasts and specific Q&As with me on topics that you want to hear. Being a Patreon member of this podcast does really help keep the support going because it's not easy to deliver this every week without you guys. So thank you so much. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please go to patreon forward slash live well, be well. Become a member and support this podcast. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.